Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello, I'm Stephen. And I'm Anoush. Yes, Helen is once again not here for the New Statesman podcast, but she will be back next week. Uh, Anoush has very kindly agreed to uh, step in. Uh, Helen might not be back, but Parliament is. Effortless segue there. Um, <laughs> what's, yeah, how's, how's their first couple of days back gone? Yeah, I was in Westminster yesterday and I don't... Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. I don't know how you felt because I think you were you were also stalking its corridors as well, but it felt like a very, very um, tense mood, I thought. I mean, at least among some of the Labour staffers and, and MPs as well. I think people obviously know that the Labour leadership result is a foregone conclusion and now they're really panicking about what comes next, um, particularly with this idea of shadow cabinet elections. The, the party did vote for it. But I think that there are some people, particularly those who served in the shadow cabinet before resigning, who actually don't know how it's going to be a way over the hurdle of, but I don't support my leader. And I, I also think that there's a feeling, I don't know whether you've picked this up, but there's a feeling among some of those people um, that it would sort of be a patch over a problem that's going to get worse and worse. So I think they think that Jeremy Corbyn's going to solve everything by actually bringing this this new system in. He's going to think he's solved everything, but actually it's just going to cover um, like deeper, deeper wounds within the party. Yeah, I mean, and also shadow cabinet elections are an appalling idea. Yeah. It's one of those things. Where, I mean, obviously Jeremy is being hugely hypocritical in that he and John McDonnell were supporters of shadow cabinet elections for a long time but they were wrong mm. it, it doesn't work the leader should pick their cabinet you know it, it may be that jeremy corbyn cannot win the next election however his only chance is if he has a chancellor who he agrees with on fiscal and economic policy as you know as Ed Ball, Balls and Ed Miliband aptly proved actually it's the thing we forget about yes. Blair and Brown they might have um, disagreed about who should lead but there was not 
a great gulf of policy between them. The leader should pick the should pick the cabinet. Um, it, obviously dysfunctional otherwise. Exactly, and also it gives Jeremy Corbyn a chance if he were to continue appointing shadow cabinet positions to appoint the broad church that that he that he actually needs but it would have to be a willing broad church yeah um and it would be on on his watch and therefore he would reap the the benefits if it actually worked out what i thought was interesting and i am in the process of so i may have written by the time uh, this comes out or uh, who knows uh what i thought was interesting was actually the fall off in support uh in for the anti-corbyn faction as it were right yeah so yeah 160 MPs voted to get rid of shadow cabinet elections. That is obviously less than the 172 who voted to no confidence. Mm. But it's even fewer, because obviously there were some people who didn't vote for the no confidence, but who went, now he's lost it, he needs to go. Right? So actually the, the diehard, we just need to keep on attacking until he dies. Yes. Tendency. The tide is coming in on them, but very slowly. Um but yeah, I mean, because I think like a lot of people on, well, not a lot, obviously, because actually, what, so 15, so basically 19 people on the right of, you know, on, you know, not just on the right, you know, among the Corbyn sceptic mm. tendency, recognise that you can't change the rules just to suit you and shadow cabinet elections were bad. Yes, um, yeah. But it's just such a bizarro dividing line. Yeah, no, um, exactly, because it doesn't benefit the, the people who want to bring them in and... I, yeah, I, I, I don't really know, but I think they're just trying everything. This is just a symptom of probably every single faction of the Labour Party trying not to split, um, aside from maybe the Corbynites. But um, yeah, I just think um, there is a fear that the party is going to split. And if it does, then it means Jeremy Corbyn's won. And so all those people who are sceptical about him or all those people who tried to make it work but couldn't quite make it work with him are now thinking, what are the little rule changes that we can bring in? How can we fiddle around the edges to make sure that this doesn't happen and we don't lose our party? And that's another sign of the fact that usually it's the... I don't like to use the term the right of the party, but the more centrist wing of the party is actually more tribal in a way than yeah. than those on th- those who are Corbyn's allies. Yeah, I think particularly because that generation of politicians are primarily a generation of people who join the Labour Party rather than joining the SDP. So yes. they are more tribal than the generation before them, and I think the generation afterwards. Yeah, I don't know about you, but it feels like when I talk to staffers about a split. On whether they're on the left or the right of the Labour Party, they're like, oh, you know, it wouldn't be so bad not to have to deal with... Yeah, that's so true. Yeah. But the MP's like, no, <laughs> I was born in this party and I'll yeah. die in it. Um, yeah, it's it's a really interesting uh, fissure. Mm. The other, yeah, obviously, the government is now back. And I think one of the interesting unreported aspects of Theresa May's psyche is her affection for the Conservative Party. Yes. Um... Yeah, and she really wants to keep the Tory party together and for it to survive Brexit, which, yeah, many people at the top of the Tory party do do think that the ambiguities, if you're being polite, uh, of the Brexit <laughs> campaign will, will, yeah, will destroy the Conservative party. And it, I think she's done a very good job so far of not upsetting any part of her party and reassuring the markets, although it is starting to unravel a bit, it feels like. I do think it will unravel a bit now that they're back in the 
back in the Commons, they're, they're being asked questions from both sides. Like the, the Brexit ministers are going to be hammered from both sides of the House on what they're taking to Brussels, what, what deal they're trying to thrash out. So I do think that that calculated, I'm saying nothing, but I'm being reassuring, I'm a steady hand kind of performance, like the interview she gave to Mar over, over the weekend, her first proper big interview. Um, I think that will start to erode a bit. But like you say, she has been reassuring all the sides of her party. I, I don't know what you think, but I actually think the people on the, the left of the Tory party, the, the more pro-Remain side, are more reassured in a way. Um, they're, they're, lots of them are saying, well, I think they, they have a feeling that she is far too sensible and has far too much affection for the unity of her party, like you mentioned, to let the party slide to the right, even with a weak opposition who aren't holding her to account, um, and even with like some quite right-wing um, senior ministers in her government she doesn't look like she's going to let that happen. She's too sensible to let that happen. That's what some of the feelings are, I think, among among those uh, among those ex-ministers who would have um, liked to remain outcome. Yeah, I think, and actually even among, I mean, obviously you expect people who've remained ministers to be more, uh, mm. more cheery, but, <laughs> you know, you, you, there are people in that government who were, talk, you know, who were using words like, this is the worst, the worst day in British history. Yes. Um, who, you know, it's not that they're now thinking it was good, they still think it was a mistake, but they are definitely reassured, they are, I think, reassured in both the Prime Minister and the Chancellor were also campaigning for Remain, and there's a yeah. feeling that she won't uh, have the kind of hard Brexit that might have the more destructive economic consequences. No. Although, of course, all of this presupposes on the idea that there is a good deal to be struck. Exactly. Like when, whenever we have these conversations, we always forget that there's another side to the to yeah. the negotiating table. So I don't actually know whether or not the sort of remain friendly Brexit dream will actually be achieved. Although there is some confidence that in Boris Johnson, in Boris Johnson being actually a, someone who didn't necessarily believe wholeheartedly in Brexit and knows full well the benefits of economic migrants. Um, so there's a bit of confidence in him there as well, despite the fact that he... He was a bit Machiavellian during the campaign. Um, And I think the other thing that she's done, which is very effective, is that by binding in those three Brexiteers, I think if if Boris has any hope of having a second coming, as it were, then uh, it it has to be at the end of a successful Theresa May government. He's Mm. he's, he's intimately implicated in the success or failure of the whole enterprise. Um, although she is coming under more pressure under the Commons now because people ask questions. Jabra Muna had a very good um, backbench question uh, mm. no, so in the select committee. And I think select committees are going to be the place where the complexities of Brexit start to properly prey upon the government. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Hi, I'm Caroline. And I'm Anna. And together we host the New Statesman's pop culture podcast, Seriously. If this sounds like something you'd be interested in, you can get this episode and everything else we've done on newstatesman.com forward slash S-R-S-L-Y. And now it's time to go down the line to the lobby with George. Hi, Stephen. Hi, George. So Theresa May has finally told the world, or at least told Tory MPs, uh, what we've all long suspected, which is that she favours a new uh, breed of grammar schools. And uh, she made this clear at the 1922 committee 
last night, having um, been remarkably coy um, in interviews before this, she said she does favour an element of selection, i.e. new grammar schools. And to her detractors, she issued quite a sharp rebuke, saying that, of course, we already have selection. It's selection by house prices. Yeah. Um, so in terms of the, the policy, uh, the consensus among policymakers is fairly uniform that they're bad. The consensus among the public is fairly uniform that they are good, which is a bit of a reversal because obviously by the time they were abolished, they were unpopular. The parliamentary math is a bit more fraught. Um, they have a small majority and we don't yet know how it is that the Tory sceptics of grammar schools will jump. What, how likely is it, do you think, that it will make it through the House of Parliament in the end? I think it all depends on the details. So at the moment, she's suggesting that they will try to make grammar schools more inclusive than in the past. That could mean uh, quotas for pupils on, on free school meals. That could mean them only being uh, established in, in particular areas. So I think it depends on how radical the policy is. But you're right, the parliamentary mass is quite tricky in the Commons and also in the Lords, where, of course, the Tories have no majority at all. Mm. And the Salisbury Convention, as it's known, is that the Lords can't block items which have appeared in a party's manifesto. But, of course, in the case of grammar schools, if you look back at the 2015 Tory manifesto, it says we'll allow existing grammars to expand. It says nothing about new grammar schools. And it's for reasons like this that some still believe Theresa May should hold an early election and win a, a mandate of her own. So she has uh, most likely a larger conservative majority for new policies, yeah. um, because the line from number 10 has always been, we are sticking to the 2015 conservative manifesto. Now, a lot of people feel that on grammar schools, at least, she's broken that commitment. Of course, she has the advantage and in some ways with grammar schools, losing on it is not that bad of a problem particularly because the people who would lead that rebellion would be the people who are her biggest threats michael gove george osborne uh nick bowles if they break with the tory right over grammar schools there is no way back to them for the top to the top table yes indeed and theresa may is clearly a sincere believer in grammar schools but from a party management perspective it's very helpful for her to have the tory right on side on this um, because their fear, of course, is that down the line in, in, in the Brexit negotiations, though the right are fairly pleased with May at the moment, uh, that she won't get enough on immigration to, to satisfy them. Uh, and David Cameron, of course, uh, suffered that experience. And if she can say, I'm delivering on, on grammar schools, that is uh, a big, big chunk of, of red meat for them. But then, of course, we also know from experience that the Tory right tend never to be satisfied. And so I think it would be wrong and premature to, to conclude that if she makes the right noises in areas such as grammar schools, uh, that they'll give her a pass on Brexit because they clearly won't. Oh, so conversations to come between Theresa May and the Conservative right. And we'll be back to discuss them all next week. This is a Manhattan-bound B-Express train. The next stop is... Grand Street. Mind the gap. Hi, I'm Stephanie. And I'm John. And we host Skylines, a city metric podcast where every two weeks we talk about cities, maps and the human world. Whether the Olympics are good for cities, what it's like to be a woman in a city. And we've had guests like Lauren Elkin, Caroline Criado-Perez. And Neil Codlin, keyboard player from Suede, because I'm nearly cool now. Tune in on iTunes or on Acast. Check it out. 
And we're joined in our second section by our culture writer and co-host, well, co-host obviously with Caroline, who's not here, co-host of the Seriously podcast, Anna Leskovic. That's me, hello. Um, to talk about how the how political supporters of political parties increasingly borrow from the language of fandom. Yeah, which is something that I suppose has been happening for a while. I think it's one of those things that's quite easy to overestimate how much it's happened in the last few years. Um, and I think people always remember like the Hope Obama t-shirts and there's something of the band's t-shirt about that sort of the way you wear that with pride and you use it to start conversations with other people who share your enthusiasm for a person or a topic. Um, but the way it's been manifesting itself recently, I guess, in, is in the Hillary and Trump campaigns mostly. We can all remember the Miller fandom stuff from last year. Um, and I think the interesting thing that's happening in America at the moment is that sort of um, idealization of your political, um, whoever you support politically. It's not so, it's less of a like, well, on balance, I think they're the best choice. And it often becomes more of a sort of identity-based issue. Um, So there's been some great stuff on this. So Trump's supporters have a sort of language all of their own. I don't know if you see people using things like... um, saying like give this man a coat is a thing which means like giving someone a reward um if you say someone's a centipede that's a compliment because there's this weird viral video that went around ages ago of like some nature documentary talking about the centipede being like a nimble navigator so nimble navigator is also a compliment um (laughs) and uh and that was interspersed with like trump talking at some sort of event ages ago and they love that kind of stuff and there's all this like you know, Reddit style language of like cuck and stuff like that that comes with the Mm. Trump campaign. And it to me, that smacks of fandom because you often have these little in-jokes that you use as a way of like identifying each other. Um, And it's like any sort of in-group language development. Um, So I'm going to, I just want to stop you. So uh, uh, how would you pronounce cuck? I would say cuck because it's like cuckolded, isn't it? So I've been pronouncing it cuck as in cuckoo. Oh no! no. Um, <laughs> oh no! You're obviously not tapped into yeah, the men's so rights I'll, movement. Yeah, I'm. I'm when it, I feel like I, I like Anna, Anna a lot, but whenever you come on the podcast, I feel old. Oh, I feel I'm so like sorry. you know that judge who's like, "Who is Gaza? <laughs> <laughs> what is the Snapchat?" Um, well, you know, I'm glad to be that presence in your life, Stephen. Makes me feel young. Um, yeah, and then I think that's interesting because with the Trump campaign, a lot of that seems to be coming from the bottom up. It's not really Trump who's leading this stuff. Mm. Whereas in the Hillary campaign, you see a lot more of her sort of mimicking um, the language of fandom in her tweets, in her social activity, that sort of stuff. Um, And sometimes that can be a bit hit and miss. Like when she did that, tell us how you feel about your student debt in three emojis or less. Well, that's not immediately borrowing from fandom. It is trying to tap into that teen, um, Mm. young online sort of vibe and it's people really didn't like it (laughs) um so it's it can be a bit hit and miss in that way so where does jeremy corbyn come into this because obviously we've not seen a politician in britain revered quite in the way that he is and and obviously they have the t-shirts and the badges and it's very much Mm. an identity thing um so do you think is that more grassroots up or top down i think it's definitely grassroots up and i think a lot of it is projection which is a huge Mm. thing in fandom is saying like um you know, even with like queering fandom narratives and stuff, you're not getting that from the thing itself. So I think a lot of the time with like 
this idea of Jeremy Corbyn being like an intersexual feminist icon. Mm. How much of that have we actually seen from from Jeremy Corbyn and how much of that relates to the fact that all his his supporters are both Jeremy Corbyn fans and identify as intersectional feminists. So I think that's where a lot of this stuff can be compared to fandom in that you get people like loving Star Trek and shipping gay narratives in it because a lot of people are watching Star Trek and they're also gay, but it's not actually that there's all this stuff coming from Star Trek that is suggesting those gay narratives. Um which can be a great thing, and it can be a tricky thing. There's, it's neither a positive nor a negative, I think. I have a kind of chicken and egg question. This might just be the people who I talk to at party conferences, but Anoush, my feeling, and, and certainly um, my impression whenever we get emails for suggestions to talk about on the second item in the podcast, is the average person who is seriously political tends to be interested in at least one thing like Doctor Who, video games, Star Trek... Um, kind of popular cultures with an existing game of thrones game. yeah 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 fan, fandom and political activity have it feels to me have always been closely linked obviously particularly and most noticeably with the liberal democrats um yeah, yeah no that, i think that's definitely true maybe there is something about following um one particular aspect of culture sort of obsessively knowing the characters predicting what's going to happen and being able being able to talk about it authoritatively in front of your friends and and your colleagues. I think there is a similarity there. Um, and I have found that from hardcore politicos who I've spoken to. There's also a similar thing in the way that um, I think you've been writing a bit about this, how um, British politicians, politics people are obsessed with the American election mm. in a way that they might be obsessed with watching a television program because it never quite reflects the reality of, of what they're what they supposedly know so much about yeah it's a bit like being like supporting I don't know Daenerys Targaryen in Game of Thrones and you can sort of mentally know that in real life you actually wouldn't like to meet this person and she's actually violent and yes, stuff. Yeah. And you can like take all that away and be like, no, she's like absolutely slaying. Like, mm. no, no, no. And you can talk about Hillary or someone like that in those terms and just be like, yeah, she absolutely destroyed Trump with that tweet. No, no, no. And see them as a character exactly. rather than thinking of them as like a... And I, yeah, again, I'm not saying that that's a terrible thing and, you know, political supporters are deluding themselves. I just think it's a different way of viewing politicians. I wonder if it can, and maybe I'm wrong about this, but maybe it can lead to a greater sense of betrayal when you have been projecting all of these things onto the person who you're, who you so admire, and then they do let you down. So we had a element of that when there were lots of Jeremy Corbyn fans who were obviously very pro remaining in the EU because they're of that demographic. And then when they saw that he wasn't quite wholeheartedly behind mm -hmm. that, a few of them did feel extremely let down. And that obviously is unreasonable because he's he's never been a, a, a fan of the yeah, if you European look at his Union. voting record. Yeah. It doesn't match up. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I think that's part of it. Definitely. You, you also actually have the weird kind of fan thing of... So obviously there's a perfectly respectable position, which is to go, I care about the EU, but I care about having a platform from the Labour left more, yes. but which some people have reached. But you also have people going, oh, no, actually, he does clearly like the EU because of this thing he said in episode 72. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, yeah, it becomes a, yeah. a, a rewrite um, in that sense. It's like retconning in, <laughs> in um, TV shows and stuff. Yeah. And then you also get this sort of the, the cuddliness of Jeremy Corbyn, I think, comes out of that as well, because you get all these like people memeing pictures of him on his bike in his tracksuit. And then that's the only Jeremy Corbyn they want to see. 
they want to see Jeremy Corbyn on his bike and Jeremy Corbyn refusing to sing the national anthem or whatever. And then that's the sort of picture mm. of him that you can build. But you then you're leaving out other things as well. Yeah. And what's strange is like, that's how he rose to power in a way by all of these people um, sort of designing this character that they could really um, get on board with. And actually there was something really appealing about it because there's no other politicians who are quite like him. Mm -hmm. But with Ed Miliband, it came right at the end of his campaign, just before the general election, people started um, photoshopping like wreaths onto his head and stuff like that. Yeah, and there's a slight difference between those two things because although a lot of the people supporting Ed Miliband said, you know, this isn't a joke... Yeah. There, there is something funny and they know there is about the the disjunct between the flower crown and this guy who looks really weird yeah. and they can be like oh my god he's so cute and the reason they think he's so cute is because he doesn't look quite right and that's yeah. all part of that whereas with Jeremy Corbyn I see a lot more of like people really feeling very seriously about the pictures of him on the bus and mm. that kind of stuff yeah it feels a bit more earnest I also think it felt to me that some of the Miller fandom was people who were engaged in geek culture who were also political mm-hmm. who were enjoying being political in the same way they enjoyed their other hobbies yeah um yeah whereas it's definitely less fun party, <laughs> yeah it's a little bit more of an they yeah. party in general less fun Hardcore. than it was than it was a year ago um yeah yeah there is yet to be uh, owen smith fan side but um yeah but maybe he'll have a Miliband rush me- towards the end which see, will do nothing for his electoral <laughs> you can see you know the sad Keanu meme oh yeah mm. like you can feel Owen Smith might finally become the sad Keanu like you know I think that's right there, there is this picture of him with a cup of tea have you seen it with the little china cup with I think ho- holly leaves on it or something and he looks so sad looking into his cup of tea so that might be one we literally love a politician as an underdog once they're already on the way out don't we yeah my favourite sad series was um, Getty suddenly published all these pictures of Natalie Bennett looking sad on a park bench with like a really strange grey filter on it yeah. um, that's all marvellous yeah but anyway thank you very much and we'll be back next week And now it's time for You Ask Us, a section in which you ask us a question. Thanks so much for all of your questions this week. The ones on basic income were, I thought, a little too complex for the format of the podcast. So I've tackled that in a blog post. Uh, but yeah, please do keep emailing, tweeting. Uh, I also have a, face- a public Facebook page where you can ask, oh, wow. ask these questions now. Um, so um, yeah, so please keep up with that. This one's about the Boundary Review, which is happening next, well, it's being released next week. Seats will be reduced from 650 to 600. Most seats will materially change. And there's an idea that this will be the mechanic whereby Jeremy Corbyn is able to transform the Parliamentary Party as he has transformed Labour's grassroots. Uh, But there is a very good question, which is, will this actually help him at all? Um... Because obviously what happens is your constituency changes, you get 40%. If you have 40% of, of the new seat under Labour's rules, it's, it's yours. You, you get to keep it. You don't have to go through a full selection. It's a normal selection process. Yeah. It's the ordinary trigger ballot yeah. thing that you'd have to do, even if, you know just normally running for that seat in the next election. And the thing with trigger ballots is, is, so basically every constituent branch of a Labour Party a local Labour Party has one vote, as it were, in a trigger ballot. So you can alienate your members mm-hmm. and lose 75-25, provided you... But if you keep your local trade union branches officials on side, 
you will mostly be fine. Exactly. Like, and it can work the other way around as well. And it's just a simple yes, no vote. Yeah. Yes, we do want them to be selected for the seat again. No, we don't. It's actually more likely to work the other way around because mm. there's obviously many more constituency branches, sorry, many more trade union branches because they can affiliate unlimited numbers. Yes. Uh, the interesting power player to watch is the shop workers union because obviously what does every constituency have more of than any other workplace? <laughs> Supermarkets. Um, and so, yeah, it will be hard. The, the question is if you have two people with 40% claims. However, one of the more interesting things about the Parliamentary Labour Party is actually these are geographical factions as much as they are political ones, aren't they? Yeah, exactly. So if you are a uh, Jeremy Corbyn supporter or you're in his office and you see these two seats up against one another and you hope that your desired candidate wins against uh, the MP that you'd quite like to be deselected, you're not likely to see that, that situation come up often across the country because you do have neighbours who are similar geographically is that right yeah it's unlikely that you you will have your side of the fight in neighboring seats yeah, yeah. The, for the most part so there'll be some interesting there may be some interesting battles in london mm. if so for example last time hackney went down to one seat that would have meant meg hillier and diane abbott who are from very different exactly ends of the yeah, Party. Be, yeah yeah so in london there is the potential for some proper ideological set twos mm. In large parts of the country, I imagine what will happen is is the least Corbyn-friendly MP will be the one left without a yes. seat when the music stops. But it will be fairly difficult. You can technically, because if they've both got a 40% claim, they go on a runoff. Yeah. Technically, you can vote for you know, reopen nominations. In practice, my instinct is that won't happen. People are always reluctant to vote for reopen nominations in any contest. Mm. Um, and I think... There will, and people, and the thing we saw last time is people don't really trust or understand AV. So I think if, say, you're in a situation where, say, Frank Field, who's compared anti Corbyn's members to execution squads, <laughs> is uh, fighting over a seat with um, Angela Eagle, mm, yeah. uh, which, you know, they are, you know they're, they're both MPs on the world, so that could very easily happen. Exactly. I imagine that one of them will triumph because people are like, well, whatever I want, I don't want so-and-so getting back in. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so it will be difficult to rearrange the parliamentary party that way. It feels more likely to me than some MPs will lose their trigger ballots. Um, if you've irritated your local trade unions, um, which really, to be honest, ought not to be a left-right thing. Mm. Actually, a lot of fairly right-wing MPs are quite on side with their local left-wing trade. If you're yeah. doing your job as a local MP, in many cases, you ought to be fine yeah. with that. Some people are getting fairly nervous, though they have, for various reasons, they have come a cropper with their local um, big employers, etc., etc. And actually, your local employers are much easier to keep on side with than voters because boundary changes means that you can gain or lose a hundred members, you know, every five years. But if you are, say, one of the MPs in Newcastle, Nissan is is, is the is the ball game as far as your affiliated union branches mm. are, regardless of what your boundaries are. So yes, that was a very long winded way of saying <laughs> it will be more difficult than uh, people commonly suppose. Uh, however, my instinct is the the PLP, in terms of the candidates who go for election in 2020, will be much more Corbyn friendly than the PLP yes. as it exists now. Yeah.
You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast presented by me, Helen Lewis, and produced by Anna Leskovitz. You can find us every week at newstatesman.com forward slash podcast or on iTunes. Our theme music is Devil with the Devil by the Underscore Orchestra, licensed under Creative Commons. Trust in politics is broken. So can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, Freddie here. I want to tell you about a new way you can support the New Statesman's independent journalism. Every morning I send out Morning Call, our daily newsletter covering everything you need to know about British politics. It's free to sign up, plus for just £3 a month, you'll get a recommended daily piece of ours sent to you in full, plus exclusive polling analysis from Ben Walker, a weekly update from Will Dunn, and our featured piece on Sundays. If you enjoy this podcast, you'll love Morning Call. Head to morningcall.substack.com and subscribe now.